Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you will join me in the 146th Psalm, Psalm 146, if you're using an iPad or a a phone or some other electronic device, I'm sure it'll give you a self-guided tour. But if you're using the book form and they're not quite sure how to find it, go right to the center of your Bible with your thumbs. It'll fall open, most likely to the Psalms. We're in Psalm 146. While you're finding your place, uh, let me remind you that uh, we're in the middle of a series on justice. And so every single week for the next eight weeks, we're going to be emphasizing various ministries, both on and off our Covenant campus, things that are sponsored initially by Covenant, as well as organizations that we partner with to serve the vulnerable populations in this area. And today, the emphasis is a coat drive for Jefferson County Community Ministries. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but it's starting to get a little chilly in the mornings and in the evenings, and that's going to get colder as we move toward the fall together. And we have several of our neighbors here in Jefferson County specifically, also in Berkeley County. Uh, But for the purposes of this drive, it's for the Jefferson County Community Ministries to help them afford the covering that they need so they can can stay warm in the winter. And you're going to get information on how to donate for that on your way out into the foyer this morning. So uh, please be in prayerful consideration of that uh, to help our partners at JCCM. I also want to remind you of a Bibles and Business Breakfast that's going to be launching this coming Thursday morning uh, at the IHOP right there at the intersection of Ranson and Charlestown. Most of you know where it is. It's behind the Applebee's there, uh, right across the street from the racetrack. And at 6.30 on Thursday morning, there's a back room that's actually rather large, and so there's plenty of room for everybody. Uh, we're going to begin a breakfast, a time just for professionals to come together before the workday. You'll be out by time in time to get to work. Uh, on time without being late for that, but we're going to be moving verse by verse through the book of James together. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you there. And if you come the first week, now we can't do this every week, but this coming Thursday, breakfast is on us. Uh, and so if you want to come and kind of check that out, I would love to see you there, uh, as I open up the book of James and we begin that study together. <clears throat> I have an admission to make to you. Um, I, um, I don't like soccer. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I know it's a popular, it is now the most popular sport in the world, and I am a little bit raw about that. I have never really liked soccer, um, and there's probably, I'm sure there's a lot of World Cup fans in front of me. I'm not telling you you're in sin. I'm just telling you that American football is superior. That's all I'm saying, okay? Um, yes, thank you. There are a few fans in here uh, this morning that would agree with me on that on that front. Uh, I, I'll also be, just full disclosure, Probably my prejudice against soccer comes from the fact that I was never any good at it. I will admit that too. I mean, there were always, I mean, growing up, like in middle school and high school, whatever we were doing in phys ed, if it was baseball, football, basketball, running track, cross country, even with this rather large frame, I I still could hold my own. I might not have been at the front of the pack, but I was within the pack. I wasn't a straggler 
until it came to soccer. And then I just didn't have the agility to pull it off. I was always tripping over something or somebody. And so I just never cared much for the sport. I never watched it uh, until one day my oldest son, who is now 19 years of age, I think he was about five, and he waddled up to me because that's what five-year-olds do. They don't walk, they waddle. And and he looked up at me with his big eye, brown eyes, and he's got his mama's eyes. And he's like, or he did at five at least. And he goes, Daddy, I want to play soccer. So guess who ended up not just paying exorbitant fees and buying uniforms and showing up before the sun on Saturday morning and coaching a sport that I hate? Yeah, that was me. You know why that is? If you're a parent, you already know the answer to that question, right? It's because if you genuinely love somebody eventually over time, you're going to care about the things that they care about. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're in the midst of a series on justice, biblical justice, and how is it defined. And and today we're going to contrast a passage we looked at last week with the 146th Psalm, because the 146th Psalm tells us that all of this really begins by adopting the heart of God, by actually loving Him enough that we actually begin to care about the things that He cares about. We launched this whole series again with the 58th chapter of Isaiah. There was a call of judgment and a call to repentance toward God's people because their hearts were not in sync with the heartbeat of God. And what I want to do at the outset this morning is put those two passages up side by side and allow you to see the contrast. Look at Isaiah 58.1. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. How's that for a call to worship? Right? That's how worship began in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Now contrast that with what we see in Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to God while I have my being. Something different there, isn't it? Now, and here's the thing. Separated by probably a couple hundred years at least. But the thing that these two passages hold in common is that they occur within the context of corporate worship. In both of these instances, a group of God's people had gathered together in a congregation, much like we are right now, and they were beginning to attempt the corporate worship of God. In, in fact, if you, had, if you were able to drop in simultaneously on both of these contexts without hearing God's perspective on it, and you saw our Jewish friends doing what they did back then, participating in the sacrificial system and paying their tithes and paying homage and doing what they do in the temple, you would have witnessed very little difference. In fact, it would have looked almost exactly the same, these two contexts, but something's different, isn't it? I mean, something is really different because both congregations are after the worship of the one true and living God, but only one of them really gets there. Only one. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know the difference because I want what these people have in the 146th Psalm. And the thing we discover here, like today, lots of churches dot the landscape here in the tri-state area. Some of those churches inside of them is the true worship of the living God. The fruit of that is the justice that we're going to discuss today. It is people that are genuinely worshiping the Lord. There are other churches where that worship is not happening and God would call those people to repentance. I don't know which or which. It's not my job to judge that, but I have been placed at this point in history as the pastor over this congregation. So we need to ask ourselves, covenant family, is this who we are? Are we, a Psalm, are we an Isaiah 58 congregation or are we a Psalm 146 congregation? And here's the difference. Here's the difference. Two groups 
Attempt worship, only one actually makes it because only one between these two shares the heart of God. And that's what this issue of justice is really about. You know, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about some pretty touchy stuff. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation. We're going to talk about poverty and systemic injustice and a lot of things that, that are difficult to get our heads around and even more difficult sometimes to discuss in societies like ours in a really civil manner. But, but none of this, I want to just tell you, full disclosure, none of this is about prescribing some sort of solution, politically or otherwise, to the problems. Because for one thing, we're never going to ultimately solve the problem in a fallen world. And secondly... This isn't primarily even about those people. So everything I'm going to say in the coming weeks when we talk about justice for the vulnerable is tied to this foundational presupposition. This is not primarily even about those people. This is a call first and foremost to share the heart of God, to care about the things that God cares about. And so as we look at Psalm 146, let's take a look inside God's heart. We see God contrasted over against human leaders, princes, as it says. And so we read the following in Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. That's a nice thing for followers of Jesus to be reminded of just one year prior to an election year. Amen. Don't put your trust in this person, that person. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Doesn't matter if he's a Republican or if she's a Democrat. Doesn't matter. One day they'll be dead. So you can hate them and you can spend all your time spewing vitriol towards somebody who eventually one day is going to be dead anyway. Or you can praise them and defend them to the hilt when they're going to be dead anyway. Don't put your trust in princes. And then right on the heels of that, comes the corollary. You need to put your trust in God. And here's why. It's a very, very simple reason why that is given to us here in the psalm. It is that reason that you and I both learned if we grew up and we were blessed to grow up in a family of faith and they taught us to pray before our meal, more than likely you've heard this prayer. You sat down in front of your bacon and eggs at breakfast or your broccoli at dinner, and especially if you were like me as an eight-year-old kid and your mom put broccoli in front of you, you were going to pray. You were going to hope that when your eyes opened, it wasn't there anymore, Right? But what did you do? You folded your hands, you put your head down, and you said, God is, and God is, yeah. That's exactly what we're about to read. Beginning with God, God's greatness. Look at these next verses. The greatness of God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. That's verses 5 and 6. Now look at how the psalmist bookends this poem in verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Our God is great. Our God is immeasurable in majesty and power. He is great. But then we also see in the next verses his goodness. Look at verses 7 to 9. He goes on and says, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God is great and God is good. Therefore, let us worship him and let us share his heart. You know, there's a lot of people who have 
who have issues with the scriptures because they sort of reflexively assume that the Bible would somehow promote injustice of some sort. You probably heard that from your coworker, maybe a family member. I'm not so sure about this, about this book because doesn't it promote slavery? Like it doesn't appear to have any problem with slavery at all. Doesn't the Bible promote misogyny? Didn't it occur within a patriarchal society that push women down? And the fact of the matter is though, admittedly, there have been many people who have followed Christ who have behaved in those ways and even weaponized the scriptures in such a way as to use their own agenda. And, and, and even though Though admittedly there are questions about certain things that scripture teaches i'm not going to lie to you and say that there's simple resolution to a lot of the very hard texts that are found in scripture i still have a lot of uh issues and questions myself after 27 years of ministry and seven years of theological higher education uh, it's okay to ask those questions but what you need to see above and beyond that is the ultimate ethic of the word of god and what you see over and over and over again is this God is great and powerful and immense, and God advocates for the vulnerable. God looks out for the little guy. God looks out for the little gal. God looks out for the vulnerable. And so a God who does this would, by default, expect his people to reflect that coming justice in our attitudes, in our hearts, in our treatment of our neighbors, in our advocacy of the vulnerable. God expects us to share his heartbeat for the vulnerable. And so let's ask that question again by way of review. What does it mean to do justice? Well, the word, as we talked about last week, is the Hebrew word mishpat. It occurs over 200 times in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. And it simply means to give someone what they are due or to give another what they are due. Now, in a negative sense, what that means is justice means to punish evildoers. Punish those who do evil. Because if you just let that go and you don't punish it, you get more of it, right? Not less of it. And so the result of that is greater injustice. In Genesis 9, God establishes human government after the flood in order to keep things from ever devolving to that point morally ever again. So if you look around and you go, wow, the world is worse now than it's ever been. That's actually not true. It was worse in the days of Noah. And that bow in the sky was a promise that through some of the systems that God would set up from Genesis 9 forward, it would never get that bad ever again. And so human government has a, a role in this to make sure that evildoers are punished. But here is the other side of that word mishpat, and it's the side that is focused upon here in the 146th Psalm and in many other places through the prophets that we're going to see over the next eight weeks. Give the oppressed and the weak and give, get, and the vulnerable, give them their due. Proverbs 31.9 puts it this way, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so the focus here is on people who are more easily harmed, more easily trampled upon, more easily without resources and or legal recourse that may, they might need in order to get what is their due. Okay, so for example, you, you punish the rapist and you put him in jail, but you advocate for and you resource the victim. And all of this for followers of Jesus needs to happen because it reflects the character of God. And there are three necessary elements that emerge out of this psalm that reflect the character of God. I want to give those to you, starting with this one, because this is foundational to why we do justice. A right view of God produces justice. 
you see God as He is, you will be a just person as the Scriptures instruct you to be. I want you to notice uh, verses 7 to 9 here, how, how justice naturally flows from this following, this recognition of God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And then he goes on in verses 7 to 9, he says, I advocate for the vulnerable. All right, and there are many, there are many well-meaning people who will give you a political or a philosophical rationale for why we should help the poor. Even some of the people that we work with are going to disagree with us about the rationale behind why we help the hungry, why we help the addict, why we put coats on those who are homeless. Why do we do the things that we do? And I said this last week, for followers of Jesus, our rationale is theological. It's not political. It's not philosophical. It begins with our view of God. Justice for a follower of Jesus is not just good ethics. It's good theology. One of the ways you can test your theology is to look at the fruit of it. And if it does not result in justice for the poor, for the vulnerable, it's bad theology. It might be orthodox, but it's bad. And it will lead us congregationally to an Isaiah 58 kind of context. And this is precisely, I would think, the sort of thing we want to avoid. We have seen who God is, and we rightly fear Him. We revere him we love him and consequently we care about what he cares about which is given to us in verses seven and nine all those vulnerable groups of people so so here's the million dollar question what does it mean to care for these people well it means several things the most obvious thing is you must not harm them no physical violence no systemic oppression that keeps them under the thumb of of another individual or another group you must not bring them harm. Um, and you know, there are groups of people in our world who are more susceptible to being harmed and being treated unjustly and having no recourse to being attacked. In fact, let's just, let's just think about physical assault for just a moment. That There are groups of people, like the homeless, for example. Did you know that statistically speaking, the homeless have an exponentially higher chance of actually being assaulted and not most of the time by another homeless person. Usually by somebody that's just wanted to bully them. An exponentially higher chance of being physically assaulted. Special needs people, particularly those on the autism spectrum, have an exponentially higher chance of being physically assaulted. Now, this next one, we'll have to put our thinking caps on a little bit because it's going to jar you a little bit, but we need to do some thinking here, brothers and sisters. The transgender population is also a population of people who have an exponentially larger chance of being physically assaulted. I'm just going to let you sit there for a minute. Because some of you, are you nervous? Yeah. Where are you going with this, Pastor? No, nowhere. Nowhere. Is something changing here at the... Nope, not a thing. Pastor, what do we believe? It we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and that sexual expression only happens in that context, period. That's what we believe. We believe everything else is sin. We believe God created male and female. 
We believe that if there is incongruence between your, your physical expression and your psychological identity, that there should be compassion, but it should not devolve into a place where you're actually trying to alter your physical identity. That's what we believe. Okay? None of that's changed. We're still talking about a human being created in the image of God, though, aren't we? And when they are exponentially more at risk than you or I for being physically assaulted, wouldn't you think God's heart would go out to that individual? See, we're so absorbed with whether somebody's on our side or whether somebody believes like we do or somebody lives like we do that we've, we, you must not harm them. Now, my guess is that most, if not all, the people in front of me are not in any danger of doing that. I hope not anyway. You will find yourself very quickly under the discipline of our elders if you do. But I don't think that's probably true. I think for most of us, we don't have any desire to physically hurt anybody or to bully anybody or to do anything like that. I don't think that's there. But here's the other side of that. Number one, you must not harm them. Number two, you must not ignore them. Don't just do this out of sight, out of mind thing, all right? It's been rightly said that if you lived in a ghetto the size of all five boroughs of New York City put together, you would likely live your entire life and never know it. You would be born, you would live, and you would die not knowing there was anything outside that ghetto, all right? And, and here, in, the, in a very large geographic and most prosperous nation in the history of the world, it is really easy for us to live in a wealth ghetto, all right? You're like, I've never heard those two words used together ever. Well, ghetto just means something you're trapped in, essentially. Many of us are trapped in a wealth ghetto. And one of the, one of the indicators of that, and I know what some of you are thinking, I'm not wealthy, Pastor. I'm not wealthy. All right, let's put it in perspective. If you make $25,000 a year or more, which can we just agree, that's chump change. That's not a lot of money, okay? You are in the top 25% of wage earners worldwide. 75% of people on this planet make less than you do. Raise it to 50000 a year, which I think is probably true of most of the people in front of me right now. Your, your household income is either at or above fifty grand a year. You know that 1% all the politicians are talking about? Congratulations. That's you. Stretch this out to a global standard, and if you make more than fifty k a year, you are in the top 1%. You're wealthy, and so am I from the standpoint of the scriptures, even from the standpoint of our own culture. And, and in that kind, of a that, that kind of environment, it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have a lot of money. But you can develop a mentality that puts you in a ghetto. And one of the chief evidences of that is this idea of out of sight, out of mind. I'm just not going to think about poverty. I'm not going to think about those people. I'm going to live separate from them. They don't live in my neighborhood anyway, so, so it really doesn't matter. I actually sat with a group of business owners just a few weeks ago. Good people, hardworking people, culturally tone-deaf people. I mean, I love them. I love them, but they didn't get this. Out of sight, out of mind. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the population of vulnerable people in our county started to become more visible. And you know what these people said? We need to move this thing. We get, get it over here. Get over here in the corner, over here in the shadows. Put a porta potty over there for them. Out of sight, out of mind. That, that's where that comes from, right? It, it's really, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but I don't know a better, better example. It's the equivalent of when you were eight years old and you threw the covers over your head thinking nobody would know you were really there. Guess what? You're still there. 
You could shove poverty to another part of the city. Guess what? It's still there. And God still looks at those people, and they are still first in his heart. What are we going to do about that? By the way, this works in major cities as well. I worked in Baltimore for over a decade, and I saw this multiple times. Someone would come in and buy up five to ten city blocks. They would raise all of the crack houses. They would replace it with upscale two- and three-bedroom flats at $3,000 a month rent, and the upwardly mobile would instantaneously move in. There'd be Starbucks ubiquitously placed everywhere. Not bad. Not bad. You've infused some wealth into an area. You probably prospered the city doing it that way. I, I don't, I don't necessarily even oppose that plan, but here's the problem with it is that there would be a construction project, the architect, the engineers, they'd all line up. And then there would be some politician with a hard hat. It's probably the only time he's ever worn a hard hat in his whole worthless life. And he walks up with a gold pair of scissors and he snaps in half a big red bow and he says we have lifted this neighborhood out of poverty no you haven't you haven't lifted anybody out of anything you just took a broom and swept all the poor people to another part of the city that's all you did all right and what you did might not have been all bad but what is that that, that what what creates that is out of sight out of mind if we don't see them if we can push them into the shadows if we can ignore them where the Lord says, these, are, these people are first in my heart. You don't push them aside like that. You don't, not, not as a follower of Jesus. What somebody does to rebuild a city, that's up to them. That's amoral. But you, followers, you do not forget about these people. Do not ignore them. Do not stay in your wealth ghetto. You think about these groups of people that are named in this passage, the oppressed, the hungry, uh, the prisoners, and we'll get to that in a minute because I know that's throwing some discombobulation in some of your minds. Yes, some of them are there because they did some bad things and they need to stay there. Okay, you feel better now? Yeah, I'm not suggesting otherwise. The prisoners, the blind, the sojourners, which is another word for the immigrant, the widow, the fatherless, are we known for our heart for those people being in sync with God's heart for those people. Because this is how God introduces himself. Two ways. Maker of heaven and earth, immense power, advocate for the vulnerable. When I, when I go somewhere else and I, I get invited either on this continent or somewhere else in the world to speak or to preach or to serve on a panel or whatever it might be, inevitably the person putting the event together will call me or they'll send me an email. And one of the questions they always ask is, how do you want to be introduced? How, how do you want? What do you, what do you want us to say about you? Well, there, there's there's a lot of things I guess you could say. I could talk about my upbringing. I could talk about my education. I could talk about this or that. But but the thing that's on my business card, that's the thing I want them to say. Just in really brief terms, you just tell people wherever, even whether whether I'm doing a pastor's conference in St. Louis, Missouri, or whether I'm talking to a bunch of communists in Hanoi, Vietnam, the Politburo, you introduce me as the pastor of Covenant Church in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. That's what I want to be known for. Because all the other stuff isn't unimportant. I love all of the things I do, seminary professor, author, all that kind of stuff. But what I want to be known for is what's on my card. If God had a business card, this is what it would say. This is how he wants to be known. Overwhelmingly throughout the Hebrew scriptures, I want to be known as a God of immeasurable power who advocates for the lowest and the most vulnerable. So do we want to be known that way? 
Because a right view of God should cause this to ooze out of us. A right view of God, it, uh, it produces justice. Now, some of you may be listening to this and going, Pastor, that, that sounds liberal. Does it? It does, doesn't it? It really does. Like, maybe should I have worn Birkenstocks today instead of biker boots? I mean, I, that sounds liberal. There are times in the Scriptures when God speaks and He sounds like a liberal. And you know what our response should be to that, brothers and sisters? He's God. We're going to roll with it. There's going to be other times, for those of you that are deep down inside going, yes, yes, yes. There are going to be other times, for example, when God speaks about gender and morality and sex and marriage and family. He's going to sound very conservative. And you know what we're going to do? He's God. We're going to roll with it. I was just wondering if y'all were paying attention. A right view of God will produce a person of justice. Secondly, a right view of God will give perspective. I want you to look at verses 7 to 9 again. When we see these groups, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He watches over the immigrant. He, he upholds the widow and the fatherless. What's our default perspective when we think about these groups of people or other vulnerable groups of people who might exist here in the panhandle? Let's take one that ought to be easy. Let's take prisoners. Let's take people that are behind bars. Can I'll just admit to you what my presupposition is about prisoners when I think of someone behind bars. All right, and this is something that I'm, just, I'm admitting this to you. Okay, my 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 default is well, they're they're a criminal and not just somebody declared them guilty and they're behind. They're, they're probably there because they deserve to be there. And they're probably not somebody that can be trusted. And I'm going to stigmatize them in a way that even after they get out, like there's going to be consequences. They may have served their time, but I don't know if I want them living in my neighborhood. And if they come into my house, there's going to be certain places I don't want them to go. And there's going to be, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm just not going to be, would I hire them? Probably not. And if I did, and a few weeks later, a laptop or something like that went missing on campus, guess who my first suspect would be, All right? That tends to be the way we think. And again, there's bad people in prison. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but when that's my default as an individual, and I read that among other things, my Lord desires to set them free I got to step back. It's not that I'm, it's not that I, I chuck all my discernment at the door and then I'm not careful, but I've got to be careful about what I say or what I assume about another individual. I've just got to be careful about that because a right view of God gives me the right perspective, not only about God, but about those, those vulnerable groups of people. I got to stop for a moment, rethink my assumptions. Then I have to think about the system that I'm in because we assume what? That our justice system is, it's a good one. And it is for the most part. It really is. Anybody think it's perfect? Okay, we, <laughs> we need to talk. Let me give you a few things to think about on your way home. Did you know that the United States of America, while 
containing 5% of the world's population, contains 25% of the world's prisoners. There's one country on the planet that imprisons more of its population than we do, North Korea. That's not good company to be in. Now, why do you think that is? Do you think, you think they're just more, you know, Americans are more homicidal? Is that what it is? Are we more prone to do evil things than other people? I don't think that's the case. I wouldn't say that. What would it have to do with? Well, there'd be a multiplicity of factors. One of those factors, though, wouldn't be the only one, that is that in the last 19 years, the number of prisoners held not by our government, but by for-profit prisons has increased by 47%. I think it's probably worthy of consideration that when you're in a system where people get filthy, stinking rich off of locking other people up, that that might actually corrupt the system a bit. Just some things to think about. The next time you think about the prisoner. Let me give you another real world example. Let's just imagine well, we're talking about the poor. We're talking about the disenfranchised. We're talking about the vulnerable. Uh, you go this afternoon to Food Line here in Shepherdstown or to one of the Walmarts in either Charlestown or one of the two in Martinsburg. And you're, you're in line to get your groceries. And in front of you, there's this young lady and she's in her probably late 20s, 27, 28. With her is this little three-year-old, just beautiful little girl probably still in diapers, two, three years old. And, and when the groceries go through the line and the total is rung up, she pulls out a WIC card, which as you know, is, is the, it's basically, it's what food stamps was a generation ago. And she swipes that card. And, and if you're like me, you're looking at that. And, and this is just a fact. This isn't wrong. This isn't right. It's just a fact. Okay. She just paid for her groceries for she and that little girl with tax dollars, didn't she? Yeah, of course she did. Those are my tax dollars that she used to go do that. And then, because I'm right behind her in line, I'm not far behind her out the door. And by the time I get out the door with my groceries, I look and I watch her load those groceries into a brand new Lincoln. What are you thinking? What are you assuming? Think about that for a minute before I tell you that whatever you're assuming, you're assuming it about my mother-in-law. Did you know that? I asked my wife permission to share this story some weeks ago when I was putting this sermon together. Back in 19, mid-1970, 75, 76, when my wife was, again, she wasn't even out of diapers yet. And my father-in-law had, at the time, a, a rather lucrative roofing business with his brothers. And they had just finished a phenomenal year. And one of the ways they decided to celebrate was he bought his, his wife, my future mother-in-law, a brand new Lincoln. And she was driving that Lincoln when my father-in-law fell off a roof. And he shattered his hip, and he would spend the next several months in a hospital bed in his own living room recuperating. Because when you're a small business owner, and this may give some of you think business owners are evil, you need to check that at the door too. You don't realize the risk that people take when they start a small business. One of which is there's no workers' compensation. There's, a, there's, no, there's no employee benefits unless you provide them yourself. And so they didn't have the money. And so my mother-in-law had to buy groceries. with. Well, she didn't have a WIC card back then. It was the 70s. She bought them with food stamps. And she took this precious little girl who would grow up to become my wife and put them both in a brand-new Lincoln. And after a couple of weeks, she actually started driving to a neighboring town because the stairs and the negative comments and the accompanying assumptions were just a little too much for her. Be careful what you assume. Be careful. 
a right view of God will keep you from that. That's the point, among other things, of this psalm. Yeah, that, that's what stops us from assuming the wrong thing, especially about people in vulnerable situations. The, the, the perspective of God, when, when you see the oppressed treated unfairly, what's your first response? When, when you see a hungry person, is your first concern whether they have access to fill their belly? Or is it all the things they should have done with their life? Is it all the foolish decisions they've made? And that's why they're there. That, that's not the perspective of God. It's not. A right view of God reveals not just justice. It doesn't just produce justice in you. It gives you the right perspective, and then it reveals your own justification. I touched on this a little bit last week, and, and I'll say it again. The Bible does not teach that the way you get to heaven is by helping the poor. There's, there's nothing about it. That's like me burning your house down and rebuilding somebody else's house. Well, yours is still in ashes, okay? And your sin is against a holy God. There's nothing about helping other people that reconciles you with God. But here's the, the flip side of that coin is that if you are right with God, that new creation that Paul describes that God creates in you, that heart of stone that he takes out and replaces with a heart of flesh, it will beat in rhythm with his, and eventually you will get to the place where you will be a person of justice. It will reveal true justification. This view of justice begins and ends with a right view of God by a justified soul. And so how we view the vulnerable reveals the condition of our souls. Jesus put it this way. Look at Matthew 5, 22. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, there's a word that's actually not in the translation that I normally use up here. And if you've got a translation that uses this word, you've actually, this morning, got a, got a more accurate translation of the Greek than your pastor. It's the word raka. If you're looking at a translation of Scripture and you see that word, you got a good, solid translation. The word raka was essentially a slur of inferiority against another human being. Think about using the N-word in the presence of an African-American or the S-word in the presence of someone of Hispanic heritage or the C-word in the presence of someone who grew up on the Asian subcontinent. This was a generalized racial slur that would have applied to anybody, no matter what color you are. Raka. It is a declaration of the inferiority of the other person. It is a declaration from me to you when I'm using that word that you don't matter. That's what it means. So it's not just a sin to mistreat a vulnerable person. It's not just a sin to ignore them. It is a sin to look at these people and say they don't matter. They don't matter. And here's the reason. It's because these are your brothers. Now, Jesus uses that term sometimes to refer to people of common faith with us. That's actually not what's happening here. The word brothers is simply indicative of the fact that it's our common humanity. We're all part of the same human family, and that human family, all of them, are created in the image of the God who created them and redeemed them. 
Now, what does that mean with regard to justice? Quite simply, brothers and sisters, it means this. When there's another human being who is vulnerable, there is an image of God stamped on that person, and that is the reason that we advocate justice for the vulnerable. That's the reason that when the criminal justice system makes people wealthy through a for-profit prison system, when the young black kid goes to prison for the exact same crime that the young white kid only gets parole for, when the single mom is carrying the nearly unbearable weight of the home and the kids and the job and cannot stand for one more thing to go wrong, when the orphan kid whose father is in prison has a gang member offer him a better identity, when the homeless die overnight in the cold, when unborn children, perhaps most the most vulnerable of all the vulnerable, are killed in the womb to, to, to solve nothing more than a supposed problem. When the released prisoner can't find a job with a livable wage merely because of his previous address, when these things transpire in our world and we react with ambivalence, we're not just saying raka, worthless, you don't matter to another human being. We are through our behavior in that moment demonstrating that we find the image of our God equally worthless. Like I said at the beginning, we don't do this because of good ethics. We do justice because of good theology and the fruit of it. We're having an argument right now in the larger network that we belong to. There's 40,000 churches in that network, and we've got guys that, that look at this issue, and they are so afraid. I mean, it, it's, you know, there are people more afraid of socialism than they are of hell. It, it just it, it boggles my mind. They are so afraid that just saying what the prophets say about justice is going to turn the church into a bunch of liberals. I'm just, and I'm going, you got to be kidding me. And they're like, we shouldn't bring that up. Why? Well, because some of the people, they don't have the right worldview. Well, that's true. Some of those people say they're Christian, but they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's true. That's absolutely true. There are so many roots of this kind of thinking that are just godless and ungodly, and we, we should reject. So we should reject doing what the Bible says to do because there were some other people who said the same thing, who happened to disagree with us on some really important stuff. We should just ignore it. We should just react against it. Really? That's what we should do? This church is part of a larger network of churches that began in 1845 because we split from a group in the north. You know why? Because we wanted to be able to appoint slaveholders as missionaries. That's the fruit of our theology. So I find it interesting that a group that has its history in that would all of a sudden be concerned that there's godless ideology. And so that, that somehow is the justification for just ignoring certain parts of the Bible. The fruit of your theology. I'm talking about men who lived in the 19th century who were otherwise godly men who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture just like I do. The deity and the virgin birth and the substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection of Jesus just like I do. Who believed in all of these things just the way I do. And they also believed not only that it was perfectly okay to own another human being, many of them did it themselves. You know what that's called? Bad theology. You say, well, they got all the really important stuff right. Yeah, but they didn't get the most important stuff right. You know how a broken clock is right twice a day? One of the things we're learning from this series, if you begin with the right view of God, a good theology produces good stuff. And according to the word of the Lord, it produces people of justice. 
This is how Jesus ties the validity of our justification to this issue. Look at Matthew 25. It really just doesn't get any more clear than this. Matthew chapter 25. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For, here's why you're going to hell. It's because the fruit of your confession revealed that you had bad theology. You were worshiping an idol. You were not worshiping the God of Scripture. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So then they will also answer saying, Lord, when? What? 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 When did we do this? Look at the last part. He will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, as you said, Raka, you don't matter to them. You said it to me. This isn't at the end of the day about whether or not hungry mouths get fed as much as it is whether you and I have a right view of our Creator or whether we're worshiping an idol. And here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You, you can't be ambivalent about these issues, but you also can't be motivated out of guilt because that's not going to last. You ever had somebody try to shame you? Yeah. Can't do that. You just can't do it. Um, you have to figure out how to have the heart of God that motivates you to do this. When I was in college, I took a music appreciation class, and I will admit to you, that I did not take a music appreciation class because I appreciated music. I did not. Especially this music. All right? I was an Eagles guy. All right? That, that's, that. These are the people that I love to listen to. Hair bands. I got two cowlicks in front and one at the back. I could never pull off John Bon Jovi in 1988, but I would have loved to. Right? Um, and so I wasn't really interested in the classics. I mean, you, the classics? You're talking about the Grateful Dead, right? No, no, no. Beethoven, Chopin, Brahms. And so this class was intended to teach you and to train your ear so that when you, you heard 15 seconds of something, you could tell the difference between these composers. Well, it all sounded like the same elevator music to me. I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to hear this. And I, but I took the class nonetheless. You know why I took the class? Because it was required to get my degree. My degree subsequently was required in order to be summarily qualified for a certain level of employment and therefore to make a certain level of salary. Translation, I took music appreciation to make money. It was very utilitarian. But something happened in the middle of that class that I could not have predicted. I fell in love with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. I fell in love with his music. You come into my study on a Wednesday, it's usually when I'm putting sermons together and I'm in my library at home, and all life, there's a near 100% chance that's who's playing in the background. I love Mozart. And I no longer listen to get course credit. I've already got that. I no longer listen to make money. I don't need that. I listen because I love the music. And brothers, sisters, that's the challenge of this song. That's the challenge. It is bookended with praise and worship. 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It ends with the Lord will reign forever. O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. These people are infatuated with their God, and that is what produces rightful justice in their hearts. You want to be a person of justice? Somebody that views the vulnerable as God sees them? Somebody whose very salvation is made evident in how you respond to the most vulnerable in the world? Fall in love with the God who created those people in his image and share his heart. And for some of you, that may need to start by you realizing his heart for you, even in spite of how vulnerable you are. So often in issues of justice, well, they don't deserve it. Yeah, well, let's talk for a moment about what we don't deserve. And yet here we are, aren't we? Recipients of the immeasurable grace of God. A God who looked down on a fallen humanity and could have damned every last one of us for all eternity, but instead he wrapped himself in human flesh, he lived in our mess, he died in our place, he rose from the dead to guarantee us life eternal. Some of you might need to come to him to find out what this is all about. Perhaps maybe you don't know him. Today would be a wonderful day to get to know the God that is described in this powerful psalm of worship. Share his heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for another lesson. We thank you, Father, that all of this is grounded in your character, and so therefore we, the shifting sands of time, are always changing. Political philosophies come and go. Your word stands forever. And so, Father, may we anchor ourselves in that. Lord, may we be faithful to you. May we become people who share your heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.